Bibles, I invite you to turn to um, Matthew chapter 26 this morning, and we want to look at verses 26 through 35. The Lord's Supper instituted, uh, Peter's denial predicted. And uh, let's uh, go ahead and look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in our, in our study, help me to teach accurately and clearly. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate teacher. And so, Lord, enlighten us, uh, strengthen us. If anyone is here listening and they have not yet come to faith in Christ, I pray that even, even today, as the Word of God goes forth, that the Holy Spirit would do His work in their hearts, that they too would become true believers. And so, Lord, we commit our study to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, note the, uh, on the overhead the outline, uh, Christ the King is the overarching theme in the book of Matthew, and we have worked our way down to the Passion of the Christ in chapters 26 and 27. And in that uh, context of the last, really the very last days of Christ's earthly ministry, we have the issue of betrayal come to the fore. Uh, the apostasy of betrayal is really an insider thing. It's a Judas-type thing. And as Jesus partook of the Last Supper, as we call it, with his disciples, he revealed to them that one of them would betray him. It was a shocking announcement. But Judas played along like he was all innocent, while at the same time totally intent on handing Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver that he had already sold Jesus out for. Uh, John MacArthur says, So strong was Judas' selfish greed that he could literally be in the midst of the living truth and go to hell on purpose. Very intentional. I mean, it, it, it is scary, uh, the, the, the state of apostasy. Well, after affirming that indeed Judas was the betrayer, uh, Jesus then dismissed Judas from the meeting and said, What you do, do quickly. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. A little footnote here. Uh, David Gazik, and I know I'm not pronouncing his name right. I think it's a, a Polish name. I never get it right. But phonetically, it looks like Gazik to me. So I'm going to probably stick with that because otherwise, uh, whatever. Uh, he says, was Judas present for the first celebration of the Lord's Supper? That's a question. Was Jesus present for the first celebration of the Lord's Supper? The debate centers on the manuscript of John 13, 2. Some textual traditions say, and supper being ended, which would imply that Jesus washed their feet and that Judas left after the institution of the Lord's Supper. Other textual traditions... Uh, including the older manuscripts, I might add, read, and during supper at John 13, 2. This would indicate that Jesus washed feet and Judas left sometime during the meal and therefore may have left before the institution of the Lord's Supper. That's what I'm inclined to think. Uh, most commentators think it's probable that Judas left the meeting before the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, last week, I showed this slide, and, uh, you know, we, I talked about, you know, we, John was over here on his right, and it says, well, Judas over here, but really, we count them up. I was especially making mention of how they, you know, with their elbows on the table, and, you know, they never learned that rule yet. You can't eat with the elbows on your table, but uh, anyway, but we'll count them up here. There's, somebody's missing, right? How many is there? There's only 11 there, right? 
So looking closer, it looks like this is where uh, Judas had been, probably. Yeah, that's what a lot of commentators say. And so he's left at this point, we, we think, very probably. And that's where we pick it up here at verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Suddenly, in the midst of eating, Jesus took the bread, which would have been unleavened bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, this was not a normal part of the Passover meal. And I'm sure the disciples had no idea what he was really doing. They didn't know he was instituting uh, the Lord's Supper, as, as we call it, or communion. Um, we know, but they didn't know. I mean, this is all brand new to them. Unleavened bread typically in the Scriptures represents uh, sinlessness. And Jesus in his body was totally without sin. And yet his body was to be broken. Uh, though none of his bones were to be broken. Very important distinction. Uh, this detail is very clearly brought out in the, the Scriptures. Uh, and there's consistency all the way through the Scriptures. Here in Exodus twelve forty six, In one house it shall be eaten, talking about the Passover lamb, uh, you shall not uh, carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Uh, so this is uh, typically uh, portraying, uh, ultimately, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is our Passover. Uh, you shall not break one of its bones. Uh, Psalm thirty-four twenty. he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. A prophecy concerning Jesus. And then in John nineteen thirty-six, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. All ties in with the truth of Jesus Christ. None of his bones were broken. And yet his body was very much torn and lacerated. Even to the point that Isaiah 52, 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. You talk a body being broken, not the bones, but the body, it was marred terribly. Isaiah 50, verse 6, prophetically says of Christ, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Indeed, his body was broken, but not his bones. An amazing reality in light of how badly he was abused. Well, each one of the disciples was to personally partake, uh, which is the idea of, of personal appropriation. It's kind of amazing how religious people can take something so simple as the symbolism of communion and really mess it up. I mean, we have a tendency to do that. Uh, the Roman Catholic view is called transubstantiation, uh, which believes that the priest has the God-ordained power to actually turn the elements of the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ, thus uh, turning the Mass into a re-sacrificing of Christ uh, every time that communion is observed. Well, in addition to being pure mysticism, uh, this really flies in the face of the truth of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ as very clearly spelled out in Hebrews chapter 10 and other places. The Lutheran view is that the body and blood of Christ is, quote, in, with, and under the elements. This view is called consubstantiation, 
And uh, like a lot of Lutheranism, it's, it's somewhat removed from Roman Catholicism, but yet pretty closely related. Uh, the Reformed view that follows Calvin sees the spiritual presence of Christ in the elements, uh, somehow communicating a special grace in the partaking, which is why it is called a sacrament. A sacrament is the idea of a, a means of grace. Through the physical ritual, somehow grace is imparted in some way. The fourth and correct view is the memorial view, in my view. Uh, in this view, the elements are merely symbolic, representing the body and blood of Christ. And partaking of them is simply done in remembrance of what Christ has done in becoming the sacrifice for our sin. Again, this is called the memorial view. It was held by Zwingli, uh, the Swiss reformer, and the Anabaptists. And, uh, you know, you have some pretty clear statements. <clears throat> for example, as Paul is explaining things in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, uh, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Memorial. Do it in remembrance. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new, command, uh, the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So clearly, when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, what we call uh, commonly communion, they did not partake of him physically. I mean, after all, he was physically right in their presence. Uh, so this was not some uh, matter of cannibalism of some sort, uh, but rather symbolism. Uh, clearly, Christ meant that the bread merely represented his body. Now, commonly, the idea of a sacrament is that which somehow communicates grace uh, through physical participation in a rite. And uh, that is why we call communion and baptism uh, the ordinances of the Lord. That is, that is, it has been ordained of the Lord. Instead of really using the word sacraments, which is the idea of somehow the physical ritual itself uh, communicates grace. Well, they are ordained of the Lord, but merely participating in them does not communicate any special saving or sanctifying grace. Uh, yes, we are blessed in the obedience of partaking, but the ritual itself does not infuse grace. There's a lot of symbolism involved in the Passover. The unleavened bread uh, represented the haste in, involved in departing Egypt. The bitter herbs represented the bitter experience of slavery from which they were being delivered, and so forth. Jesus, in effect, uh, transformed this meal from symbolically looking back to the deliverance from Egypt to now applying it to himself and the deliverance that he was to accomplish at the cross. Now, the unleavened bread uh, represented his body. The wine represents his blood, which was shed for our sins. The point is both Passover and the Lord's Supper have a lot of symbolism involved. Both uh, do. Now, and for Jesus, uh, using metaphorical language was nothing new. I mean, he likened himself to a vine, a shepherd, the door. Uh, so the use of metaphorical language here is totally consistent with how Jesus often spoke in reference to himself. 
Well, Jesus fulfills the symbolism of both Passover and the Lord's Supper. Uh, he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And the elements in communion symbolically represent his broken body and his shed blood. Verse 27, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. In the course of the Passover meal, there were four different cups. Four cups. And these cups were based on uh, the four I wills found in Exodus chapter 6. And we read there, I'm giving you a little background here, but Exodus chapter 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Passover was a time of remembrance. It was all about how, well, how God had delivered them uh, out of Egypt. And so they would recount this passage uh, with the four cups related to the Passover feast. And in particular, these four cups represented this. Uh, the cup of sanctification, first cup. I will bring you out. The cup of deliverance. Uh, deliverance from, uh, uh, from Egypt uh, as he brought about the plagues and the judgment on Egypt. I will deliver you. The cup of redemption or blessing. I will redeem you. And then the final cup, the cup of Hallel. Uh, Hallel is the word from which we get the, the word hallelujah. It's, it's the high praise word. And uh, referring ultimately uh, to kingdom restoration, I will take you for my people. So most commentators believe when it talks about here, he took the cup. Uh, this was the third cup called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, signifying that Christ was going to set his people free through his shed blood. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, calls the communion cup the cup of blessing. That coordinates to the third cup, uh, directly relating it to the communion of the blood of Christ. And then in verse 21, he calls it the cup of the Lord. Well, amazingly, when Christ took this cup, fully realizing all that it symbolized and the horrible death that lie right before him, realizing all this, it says he gave thanks. He gave thanks for the breaking of his body and for the blood that he was about to shed, symbolized by the cup. Now, how could he give thanks for this? Well, in Luke 9.31, it says that they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His death was an accomplishment. He could give thanks for what this was going to accomplish. He was, in effect, celebrating the victory over sin that would, that this would bring about in terms of the trophies of grace it would secure for all eternity. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, we read, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. This is what the cross accomplished, bringing many sons to glory, 
to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And then in chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, a footnote here. Uh, Ed Glasscock says, None of the gospel writers uses the word wine, though the drinking of wine at Passover cannot be denied. And D.A. Carson says, the wine was not grape juice, though it was customarily, uh, it was customary uh, to cut the wine with a double or triple quantity of water. All this to say, the fruit of the vine, uh, you know, what form that is, I mean, you know, you, you can use whatever. It doesn't specifically specify. But I, we do believe it was <coughs> wine that they actually used. Uh, but note in particular here that when Christ gave it to them, he said, drink from it, all of you. Now, that's very important. Again, each one was to partake, <clears throat> no exception here. And likewise, all of Christ's people have by faith appropriated the blood of Christ, thus making him our Savior. There is no exception to this. And this is what is portrayed in communion. We all partake. We don't say, well, today this section will partake. Last time it was you guys, but today it's only... No, no, no. We all partake in communion because all of us have personally appropriated the blood of Christ. And in the taking of communion, we are remembering what he has done for us as our Savior. This is our testimony every time we have communion. It's very personal, and yet it is interesting that God has ordained that the church together as a family of believers partake of this. Because, you see, God not only saves us individually, he does do that individually, but in the saving of us, we become part of a family. And you know how long we're going to live together? Yeah, a long time. Uh, forever. I mean, you're stuck with me forever. You're just never going to, I'm not, no child left behind here, truly. We're all going to be there. Uh, this, by the way, is, uh, when we have communion, I always say this is for believers, uh, it's not for unbelievers. Uh, we are remembering uh, that we have a Savior, that we have a, a personally appropriated. We have drunk ourselves personally in that sense. We have applied the truth of Christ by faith. So it is for believers. Verse 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. God relates to people by way of covenant. The word covenant literally means to cut, which is very appropriate in light of the whole discussion here, the broken body and so forth. The word covenant literally means to cut. When they made a covenant in the Old Testament, literally they would cut a covenant. Now the making of the covenant normally, therefore, involved sacrifice. Uh, the slaughter of an animal visibly displayed what would happen to anyone breaking the covenant. For example, when the people made a covenant with God in Jeremiah 34, they cut a calf in two, and then it says they passed through the bloody pieces, indicating if I don't keep my commitment, this covenant commitment, may this happen to me. Now, the old Mosaic covenant was ratified with blood, Exodus 24.8. And so now also the new covenant, 
only it was ratified with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the older manuscripts here in Matthew 26, verse 28, uh, don't have the word new here, but the parallel text of Luke 22:20 20 does, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians 11:25. The Mosaic Covenant had a problem. And really, it wasn't the Mosaic Covenant that had a problem. We had a problem with the Mosaic Covenant. And the defect was the weakness of the people. It was a covenant of works. And that doesn't work for us, pun intended. You see, no one could keep the law. All, there were 613 laws. You had to keep them all in thought, word, and deed. And James says, uh, whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet if any one point, he is guilty of all. I mean, God is a holy God, and in order to live with a holy God, you have to be holy. You can't be unholy and be in fellowship with a holy God. Uh, you want to go live in God's holy heaven, you have to be holy. Uh, the law presented the high standard, what requires to get there. We just, we just couldn't do it. Th that's the old covenant. Uh, keep this and you'll live. Nobody could keep it. That's why the law condemns everybody to death. So God, in the Old Testament, promised that one day he would enter into a new covenant relationship with his people Israel. With the principal text being Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40. However, there are many Old Testament texts that speak to this future new covenant relationship that God would have with his people Israel. So the reality of a future new covenant <clears throat> was clearly laid out in the Old Testament. But the basis for it was not so clearly spelled out. Now we can go back and we can piece it all together now from where we stand with New Testament revelation. But it was pretty foggy back here. Okay, there's going to be a new covenant. On what basis? Well, that was not clear. Now we know... Now, based on New Testament revelation, that the basis for it is the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We know that. We remember that every time we have communion. The new covenant was inaugurated and established by Christ's blood sacrifice as stated by Jesus here in Matthew 26, verse 28. <clears throat> it is appropriated and entered into by faith, as seen in Romans 3, 24 through 26. And it is applied by the Holy Spirit as seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As believers in Christ, we are now a new covenant people in a new relationship arrangement with God. The blessings of the new covenant relationship are restorational and spiritual. Starting with the reality of, are you ready for this? Drum roll, please. Somebody do something. No, we won't wait that long. But uh, remission of sins. How can you really know you're forgiven? Look to the cross. I mean, that's the whole nine yards. It's not anything we have done. It's all what Jesus did. And Jesus did it all. We owe everything to him. We're giving glory to him forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's all his doing. Under the new covenant, God promises that he will remember our sins no more. 
That is, they will never be held against us. Not even one of them. You say, boy, I've done some really bad things. I know, that's why Jesus died for you and me. I shudder to think about some of the things in my life that I did. And do, frankly. Ever have a really bad thought? I know none of you ever have that happen anymore, but sometimes it happens to me. Praise the Lord for the new covenant. Hebrews 10 goes into a lot of detail about this. Recounting, now we're under a, a, everything's better in Hebrews. Uh, We have a a better priest. Uh, He's better than angels. We have a better sacrifice, a better covenant. Everything's better in Hebrews. Building up to the climax of the new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What a wonderful reality. You can face death with this. In the new covenant relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is prominent. Not only are we forgiven, but we now have an, an internal relationship with the Holy Spirit that changes us from the inside out. And the new covenant is a package deal. Now, some people seem to want to claim the forgiveness part, but not the changed life part. Just one, the Bible puts that all together under one new covenant. The new covenant is all about changed hearts and lives. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about, where Paul says we are being transformed. He didn't say maybe. No, no, it is happening. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, Just a few high points from Hebrews chapter 10 here, as far as the new covenant relationship. We've been perfected forever. By one offering, we've been perfected forever. I, I love that. I love that. Perfected forever. I like perfection. I never arrive at it myself, but Jesus arrived at it for me in his blood sacrifice for me. By one offering, he has perfected forever. But then it goes on to say, those who are being sanctified. Positionally, we are perfect before the Lord, but in our practice, we are in process. We are being sanctified. But they go together. If you know the Lord, you're perfected, but there's an ongoing work in your life. That's what I mean by the package of of the new covenant. We are being sanctified. That's the end of the verse there in Hebrews 10, 14. Uh, In the new covenant, God says, "Ah, he will change their hearts. And in their minds, he will write his law. Changed hearts, changed minds. You're forever changed. You say, well, I'm a Christian. You're a changed person. Forgiveness of sins. All of those things. A package there. Uh, David Gazik says, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can have a new covenant relationship with God. Sadly, many followers of Jesus live as if it never happened. As if there is no inner transformation. As if there is no true cleansing from sin. As if there is no word and will of God in our hearts. As if there is no new and close relationship with God. Well, that's all a denial of what new covenant truth is all about. And frankly, if one can live like it never happened, then it probably has not happened. 
Being in a new covenant relationship with God is a life-changing reality. Is this not what Paul meant when he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation? Old things are passed away, those old relationships. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Notice Jesus says here that his blood is shed for many. And I take many here as inclusive rather than exclusive. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Christ's death, while sufficient in itself to care for the remission of the sins of every person, is here regarded as actually effective only for believers. I agree. Christ's sacrifice is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, as so stated by John in 1 John 2.2. And yet it is effectively applied only to believers. Only believers enter into the good of it. It is sufficient for all, but effective only for believers. By the way, this in my theology is why it is so serious to reject the blood payment of Jesus Christ. You see, payment was made for all, and therefore the rejection of it is eternally serious. I think this is the spirit of Hebrews 10, 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, the person of Christ, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, speaking of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, they are accountable for the gospel because provision has been made for them. To not obey it, to not respond to it with the obedience of faith, to use the language of Paul in Romans, will result in everlasting punishment. One more thing about the new covenant. It was essentially promised to Israel. You say, we're not Israel. That's right. Good theology. We are not Israel. We are the church. It was essentially promised to Israel, as we see in Jeremiah 31, etc. And as promised to Israel, it ultimately includes both spiritual as well as physical restoration. The land promises which will finally come to pass as Israel comes to repentance. As the church, we are grafted in to this new covenant relationship. And we partake of the spiritual blessings, but not the physical land promises. Again, I agree with John Phillips, who summarizes... It, the new covenant, contained two kinds of clauses. It's eschatological, long word meaning future, last things. It's eschatological clauses belong exclusively to Israel and are guaranteed by the shed blood of Calvary's lamb. The soteriological salvation clauses belong inclusively to both the nation of Israel and the church and provide for the salvation of all those who believe. Verse 29, 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Evidently, Christ did not drink the fourth and the last cup of Passover. This fourth cup is to be reserved for kingdom restoration. This is the cup of Hallel, or the praise cup. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the high praise word hallelujah, although found uh, in the Psalms in the Old Testament, mostly, uh, is not found in the New Testament until we get to that climactic second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. After his resurrection, we do have record of Jesus eating with the disciples, but not drinking. The fourth cup was also called the cup of acceptance, the cup of anticipation, or the cup of consummation. Looking forward to the kingdom when God's people, Israel, will finally be restored. Thus, this fourth cup looks forward to the celebration of the messianic banquet in the kingdom. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Isn't this interesting? Isn't it a beautiful way to end uh, this, this uh, Last Supper? At the close of the Passover, it was customary to sing the last part of, of that, select, uh, that uh, section in Psalms that we call the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And it's thought that they probably sang the last few of those Psalms, perhaps uh, 115 through 118. It's also noted that it was common uh, for the Jews to also sing Psalm 136 with the recurring refrain, His mercy endures forever. So it is interesting that the last meeting they had together, uh, as it was concluding, they sang a hymn. And it is striking that this is the only record we have of Jesus singing. And, and in the context of preparing immediately to go to the cross... We have a singing faith. And there's something about singing that ministers to us in a very deep way. And we definitely want to be careful what we sing. We want to sing strong, good theology. Uh, I have some concerns about a lot of the the contemporary music. I have some problems with some of the old stuff too. Uh, Really, all along, the whole issue is sound doctrine ultimately. Uh, That's the ultimate issue here. But they sang a hymn. And as they went out, they made their way to the Mount of Olives, uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. But then we have interjected a parenthetical issue. Now, we're not sure if this uh, chronologically follows us as they were leaving, if this discussion takes place on the way to the Garden, or if this is a flashback to earlier in the evening in the upper room. You can make a case for all of these. But whatever, verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus here drops another revelatory bombshell. And he dropped a number of them this night. Uh, They've been coming hard and fast. First, he informed them that one of them would betray him. Shock. Now he tells them that they are all going to abandon him this very night. The word stumble is the Greek word skandalizo, which means to be offended or caused to stumble. 
That very night, all of them, without exception, would stumble spiritually over allegiance to Christ. And Jesus, once again, appeals to Scripture, emphasizing that this will happen in fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Really, specifically, the prophecy is found in Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. Now, many Jews considered Zechariah 13, 7 to be a messianic prophecy, not really understanding the import of it. But I want you, just as kind of a footnote, to to, uh, note that phrase, against the man who is my companion. Uh, If you read commentators, they will all say this is very significant. It is spoken by Yahweh, and this speaks powerfully to the fact that Messiah Shepherd would be a man and at the same time equal with God. The sense here is the man my equal. You see, companion here designates a person who is an equal. Well, what man could possibly be equal with God? You know the answer to this, don't you? You New Testament theologians, uh, those of you who have New Testament revelation, you know what the answer to that question is, don't you? What man could possibly be equal with God? Well, the answer is only the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through the Gospels, we have this phenomenon where Christ, life, ministry, and person are interwoven with this dual reality of him being both God and man in one person. And even on the night of his betrayal, this scripture that brings this out is brought forth. Again, just by way of summary, uh, Zechariah 13, 7 speaks of one, my shepherd, the man, my companion, equal. Strike the shepherd, sheep will be scattered. All fulfilled perfectly in relation to Jesus. Verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So clearly he's going to be struck to the point of dying. Because in order to have a resurrection, you first have to have a death. And Christ says here, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Even though Jesus was imminently facing the cross, he was very forward-looking in his perspective. He definitely saw beyond the cross. In verse 29, he spoke of sharing the fruit of the vine with the disciples in the kingdom. Now here in verse 32, he speaks of life after the crucifixion, saying he would be raised and go before them, uh, meeting them with the idea of meeting them in Galilee. As the shepherd, he always goes before us. I love this about Jesus. He is our good shepherd. He always goes before us. The shepherd is out front leading us. Now, it seems as though at this point, this went completely over the heads of the disciples. But later, as they would look back on it, it would all fit and make sense. In the upper room, Jesus said things like this. This is the upper room, the the night before the crucifixion. 
Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. It will all make sense later. And then in verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. One of the reasons Jesus was telling them all these things is so that in their fulfillment, in the fulfillment of these details, their faith in him would be steeled and solidified. And it was. All of the disciples, perhaps with the exception of John, died the death of a martyr for the cause of Christ. To a man, they were totally convinced. They knew the truth of the resurrection, and they were willing to die for it. Well, after the resurrection, they saw how all the prophetic pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly together in the person of Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of them all. Verse 33, objection, we have an objector, objection, Peter answered and said to him, this is, this is some kind of boldness. I, I don't say it's holy boldness, but it's some kind of boldness. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Lord, you're dead wrong. That's what he said. Jesus, you're wrong. You got it wrong, Jesus. You just said we're all going to stumble tonight. Not me. Nope, 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 not me. No way. Now, don't you just kind of want to shake Peter at this point? Don't you want to kind of point out to him that whenever he has tried to Christ, this is, has, has never ended good. It always ends badly. I mean, Jesus has just said, I mean, just said, all of you will be made to stumble. But Peter, impetuous as he was, dared to refute that, saying, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter saw himself as a cut above. He didn't defend the other guys. He, he, in effect, almost really agreed that they might sell out. Yeah, 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 they might. But he was emphatic that he would not. Peter thought he was better than the others. Now, many think this was in the Lord's mind when after the resurrection, remember as he's restoring Peter in front of all the other disciples in John 21, 15, he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? <laughs> really humbling experience. It was humbling, and Peter needed humbling. In fact, this whole experience turned out to be a humbling, life-changing experience for Peter. Now, I do appreciate the sincerity of his heart. I really do. Uh, He was saying, Lord, I'm in. I'm in. I mean it. You can count on me no matter what. And I appreciate that. And I think Peter was totally sincere. I don't think he was disingenuous, not even for a a nanosecond. He was sincere. I mean, think about this. When they came to take Jesus, no one else whipped out their sword. But Peter did. He he meant it. He was ready to do battle. And just to prove it, he sliced off the, the high priest, the servant of the high priest's ear, right? Oh, he was sincere. A little later, Jesus puts his finger on this very issue. And we'll get to this, but a little jump ahead just a little. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. But the flesh, the flesh is weak. There is the problem. 
I mean, Peter was totally willing. He had a good heart in that sense. But his flesh was weak. He didn't realize his human weakness. And can't we all identify with Peter in this? I know I can. In wanting to shake Peter, I often want to shake myself too. In fact, I often say how much like Peter I am. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Jesus didn't back down. said, okay, Peter, uh, maybe I misjudged you a little bit. No, 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 no. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night, Peter, this night before the rooster crows, early in the morning, you will deny me three times. Instead of reassuring Peter or thanking him for his good intentions, Jesus told it like it was going to be. He very strongly told Peter and corrected Peter that indeed this very night before the the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now that had to hurt. I mean, Peter was as sincere as sincere could be, and yet Jesus flat out tells him he's going to deny him three times. And that in the space of a few hours before the rooster crows. Now, Peter thought he was a rock. But he did not really know his own weakness. He did not really know his own heart, but Jesus did. He knew him better than Peter knew himself. Now, both the Romans and the Jews divided the night up into four watches. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, cocks can, cocks can crow at any time, and sometimes they, they might crow a little at midnight. But cock crowing in earnest was thought to begin about 3 a.m. in the morning. So in effect, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before early morning, before the rooster crows. In Mark 14, 30, it adds the detail that the rooster would crow twice. But when that rooster went off, Peter instantly remembered the word of the Lord. And immediately it struck him to his heart with with deep conviction. Matthew 26, 74, 75, then... He began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. I don't know him. No. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord Jesus, who said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Peter sinned, he failed, he fell, and he hated it. This is the stuff of a true follower. It's not that we never fail, but when we do, we hate it. Peter said to him, back to the interaction, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now, Peter's pride at this point got the best of him. Instead of humbling himself down and agreeing with the Lord, and saying, well, after all, Lord, you are the Lord. And after all, Lord, you're never wrong. Uh, no, no, no. He doubled down. And with great bravado, 
said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Talk about flat out contradicting the Lord. He did it. And in doing so, Peter really denied the word of the Lord as if he knew better. But for better or worse, and largely for better, Peter was the leader of the entire group. And we often say Peter was first among equals, and, in, and he was in a lot of ways. Repeatedly, we see him influencing the entire group. And that's the sense here. Peter is the outspoken one. And then the rest of the disciples were also chiming in that they too would, would not deny the Lord, even if they had to die. So we don't want to just get all over Peter. I mean, they all were chiming in here. They all were, yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, we're, we're there, Lord. You count on us. Yeah, all of us. We're all here. Except for Judas. I don't know where he went. But indeed, Peter was the leader, the main spokesman, the one who put himself above all the others. Well, in just a short time, it would indeed be every man for himself, with no thought for Christ. They would indeed all be scattered with their bravado, evaporating into thin air like a vapor. Peter had a lot to learn, as we all do, but a key lesson that Peter had to learn was that we are only as strong as our dependence upon God. You know, we're really in and of ourselves not very strong at all. In our humanness, we are very frail. We are prone to failure. We can think we are so strong and turn right around to be terribly weak. That's what happened to Peter. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. A key secret in life is learning to depend on the Lord to be our strength instead of depending on ourselves and our own resources. Paul said he had learned to rely on the Lord and came to the conviction that he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. This is the key. Without the Lord, we can do nothing. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. James teaches us the proper humility says, if the Lord wills, we shall live. Let's start there. And do this or that. At every step, we are dependent on the Lord. If we are faithful, it is because of his grace. Well, Peter, in his youthful arrogance, failed miserably. But you know what? He learned through it. And this is the point. Through it all, even in our failures... God is teaching us. Failures are not wasted. They are used of the Lord in the lives of his children. Peter learned, and he went on to write both First and Second Peter. He wrote First Peter to the suffering saints. And you know what he, a key emphasis there is? Well, here it is. First Peter chapter 5, 5 and 6. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Pride is said to be the besetting sin of mankind. But praise God, he has provided a savior. And as we humble ourselves and look to him in faith, we are forgiven. This is the great issue in life. 
In salvation, we are humbled before the truth of the cross. And then as we grow, we are ever learning the great lesson of humility. You know what life is? In my view, and I've lived long enough to know a couple things about life, only by the grace of God, of course. But uh, life, I think, is one long lesson in humility. Little by little, God takes more and more from us until all we have left is God. And in God, we have everything. You say, oh, that's terrible. No, no, it's not. In God, we have everything. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What more do you want? Think about it, though. As people get older, all they have clung to in life starts to be taken from them, right? I used to bounce up the stairs three at a time. Now one at a time can be a challenge. Little by little, we begin to lose our health. You say, I'm not getting older, I'm getting better. Do not deceive yourself. Little by little, we're getting worse. I mean, physically. Little by little, our minds start to fail. I'm having a senior moment. Little by little, we begin to lose our strength. Little by little, our resources begin to dwindle. But hopefully in this process, God becomes more and more to us. And finally, we have no strength at all and death overtakes us. But even in our weakest point, the point of death, the people of faith find strength in God. We are humbled to the ground and God raises us to heaven. It's glorious. This is where eternal strength is found. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Where do you find your strength? In God. My flesh and my heart fail. Yeah, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, that's Yahweh, short for Yahweh. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. In the book, there's a chapter titled, The Valley of Humiliation. And there we read, Christian may have entered the valley of humiliation overconfident and puffed up with false pride, but he departs with humble reliance on the word of God and prayerful gratitude to the Lord of the highway who has come to his aid and saved him from the destroyer. He goes forward with his sword drawn. drawn. He has learned his lesson and now relies consciously on God's word for protection. Well, may we do so as well. God help us as a way of life to rely consciously on the Lord as we venture through this life on our pilgrim journey to the glory land. Truly, the Lord is everlasting strength, all made possible by this new covenant relationship that we believers now have with him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Let's stand and have our closing song.